0: Welcome to the Calvary St. George's Sermon Podcast, proclaiming the historic faith of Christ and Him crucified. These podcasts are recorded and produced by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. For more information, head to calvarystgeorge's.org. Uh, that parable just kind of hit me in a real way, and all of a sudden I think I might preach on that. No, I'm just kidding, but I have a wonderful thing. But I mean, that is it. Um, that is the issue with humans, is that we really don't like God because um, heaven forbid someone get away with something. You know, most, it's, it's interesting when you think about it. Most people actually uh, don't like God for the wrong reasons. Uh, They don't like him because they think he's totally unfair, and you're right, um, but he's unfair because he's so gracious and good that uh, someone you don't like, probably your Republican neighbor or your Democratic neighbor um, with the Hillary Clinton sticker, is definitely getting into heaven as well because he is so gracious and good. But I want to welcome all of you to Calvary St. George's, wherever you're watching from. I'm glad that you're here. and i want us to dive back into the book of exodus uh, because the book of exodus all of these miracles really they point to and find their fulfillment in this god who is so gracious and in the timeline of the book of exodus it's been about a month and a half since the parting and the crossing of the red sea and israel is in the middle, middle of not just the desert it is the desert but they're specifically in the middle of the wilderness And the wilderness in the Bible is so much more than just a desert. The wilderness is always a place of trial, a place where the needs of our temporal life can literally overwhelm us. It's a place that teases out our idolatries. For example, New York City for a lot of people, while urban, by the biblical definition, is a wilderness because so many people come here to satisfy that thirst and hunger. You know, they come here to satisfy that worldly itch, and it just never seems to be satiated. In the wilderness so far, Israel has encountered two real needs. The first is thirst. Have you ever been insanely thirsty? It is an awful, awful experience that will cause you to question any notion of goodness. Yet God provides. We read in the earlier chapter, he turns bitter, poisonous water into something sweet and drinkable. In our reading today, Israel is faced with the second primal concern, hunger. And as we read in our text today, Israel is beyond simply a growling stomach. They are beyond hangry. They are livid. With Moses, they're livid with Aaron, and they're livid even with God, and they begin to complain in unison it says. A better word for it would be they begin to grumble. And we read their complaint, and it's a profound one. If only we had died at the hand at the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill of bread. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. That's a powerful complaint. A quick sermon fun fact for you, though. A flesh pot is a lipstick by Mac that is moderately warm-toned, light beige with a satin finish, and retails for around $20. Don't believe me? Look it up right after the service. But in this context, it's a Dutch oven with meat that stews all day. Read the earlier chapters of Exodus. Israel had no time to tend to flesh pots, both lipstick and stew. They were slaves, and they were working all the time. But this gives us a real insight into the good old days. The good old days for Israel and the so-called good old days for us are often sinful and idolatrous illusions where in romanticizing the past, we miss what God is doing in the right now. You see that happening in our country right now, as people are romanticizing the good old days, and we're missing the moment where God is at work right now. And this is my first point. In the wilderness of life, because of the deficiencies of the present— we tend to exaggerate the happiness of the past. The crisis of the present. For Israel, it's hunger. For you, it's a relationship. For you, it's sickness. For you, it's a nagging addiction. For you, it's a job or a lack thereof. These all can lead to a crisis of faith, which causes us to call into question God's love God's faithfulness, and even his presence in the moment. It seems easier almost to romanticize and fall back into the old patterns, the old habits, the old identities, than to trust in the God who is providing what we need in what appears to us to be the unknown. I know I've been wrestling with that with the church, Real easy to go back to the good old days of 2013 or whatever that was, you know, as opposed to recognizing what God is doing with us as a community spread all over the world now online. However, this particular predicament, your present predicament does not catch God off guard at all. Here's the truth. This is a hard pill for some of you to swallow. God, actually, is the one who's been leading from the beginning. He's the protagonist in the book of Exodus, and he's the protagonist in your life. When one studies the book of Exodus closely, you love all those names. Ha-ha, they didn't have GPS, they were out there for 40 days, you know, ha-ha. Why didn't Moses just ask his wife? The truth is, when you read the book of Exodus closely, we understand that Israel's present predicament of hunger had actually been brought on by God. And it had been brought on by God in the form of provision and protection. Because in Exodus chapter 13, verses 17, we're told that when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the shortcut up the northern part of the Sinai, because that was the land of the Philistines. God says, let the people change their minds, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. You see, at that moment, facing hunger is much better than facing the Philistines, a vicious, crazy people who buried their children into the foundations of their homes so that Molech and Baal would bless them. As a band of weak slaves, it would have been far worse. For them to face them than their present hunger. I love how the great Anglican Old Testament theologian J. A. Motaire puts it. He says, In a word, the trials of the pathway may take us by surprise, but never God. They may catch us unprepared, but never Him. This is my second point. God is not shocked by COVID. God is not shocked by the racial unrest. God is not shocked by our present predicament. It may be part of His pathway for you. And His pathways, as the psalmist says, are always good. And therefore, this pathway is good. It's God is the one who led Israel, and it's God who's the one who's led you out this way. And sometimes he has led you out this way to deliver you from something far worse. The problem is, is we're so busy kicking against the goad because we think we know better than God, longing for the past that we miss the grace and the blessings of the present moment. However, this is the good news. Your kicking against the goad has never stopped God, and it can't stop God, because as I've said before, he's not about to let you creatures have the final say. For he's always at work in your wilderness, and he brings light into the darkness. God brings life into death. And as Israel demonstrates in their grumbling, God works in our wilderness not because we deserve it. I mean, Israel does not deserve it. They are terrible, like all of us. You read on in this chapter, he's like, just take it for six days on the last day, take for two days. And they're constantly hoarding this manna, and it's constantly rotting. They're constantly failing the test. But God works in our wilderness not because I deserve it or because you deserve it or because Israel deserved it. God works in our wilderness because God is gracious and he is merciful and he is good. And God is the one who's faithful. When more often than not, you and I, like Israel, are faithless we see this in the way that God responds to not only Israel's doubts, but they're literal. Our reading opens up with an accusation of murder. You brought us out to kill us. And they keep doing this on the repeat. And God responds to this false accusation, not with lightning bolts, which Jacob would have done had he been God, but with two wonderful gifts of food, bread and quail. And he provides it every day for the 40 years of their sojourn. Now, what's happening here is extremely significant because it points and finds its fulfillment in the gospel. And therefore, it has significance for you as you sojourn through this wilderness called life. If you remember, bread makes its first appearance in the Bible in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve are cursed and God tells them by the sweat of your brow, you will eat bread until you die. But you're going to eat of it by the sweat of your brow. Hence, bread in every society, because this happens right at the beginning, in every society represents work. Farmer's work, uh, baker's work, miller's work, grocer's work. That's why here in New York, the slang word for money is what? Bread. Uh, Maybe in the 70s. But anyway, the the slang word is bread. You have to work for it. However, here in this scene, what does God do? He provides bread for free. This is why the Israelites literally call it manna. In the Hebrew, manna who? It literally means what is it? Because this bread is all grace. This bread is all gift. This bread is from heaven. Now, as I was prepping for this sermon, I read an article entitled, Manna is Real and It's Not So Heavenly, by Vered Gutem in the Jewish magazine um, Moment. And uh, he tells the story similar to Jim about going out into the Sinai and kind of beholding the natural miracles that happen out there. And he writes about the history of manna and how it's not only found in the Hebrew scriptures and in our Old Testament, it's found in the New Testament, and it's also talked about in the Koran and throughout Persian literature. But he writes that after the Six-Day War, Israeli botanists, for the first time, went into the Sinai to study the plant life. And they found early in the morning on all of these shrubs and uh, tamarish trees, In the morning were white drops where the digestive byproduct of insects that feed on the plant saps uh, would be left. And so there was this secretion that formed overnight, and the secretion they studied is loaded with sugar. So the sweet liquid over the night, it hardens and it forms white granules and is still collected from spring to fall by the Bedouins. The, um, the uh, Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. actually bought a bunch of this stuff and, uh, and used it for a dessert, and it fits the taste that's described in the Bible, like sweet, wafer-like honey stuff, almost like a nougat. But anyway, when the scientists first saw this, they asked the Bedouins, they were like, they were like what is this? And the Bedouins responded, exactly. What is this? Manahu? This is manna. Which prompted the author then to essentially write, no big deal, the miracle was solved. It was kind of like one of those, they didn't cross in the deep part of the Red Sea sort of things. Now, remember what I said last week, because I was like blown away by this article. So remember what I said last week, God does not work through magic, but he works through his creation to save and redeem his people. So this makes total sense to me. This isn't a debunking of anything. This is an affirmation for me that God would take ordinary things, bug secretion and quail, things in nature, and multiply it in order to feed lots of people in the wilderness. Hmm, where have we seen that before? Or where will we see that again? Well, I'm glad you asked, because it's recorded in all four Gospels. In the wilderness, because Jesus looks out over the crowd and has compassion on them, John says he saw them and they were like a sheep without a shepherd. And he feeds the multitudes with five loaves and two fish. Also, fish are known as the quail of the sea. No, I'm just kidding. That's from the chicken of the sea. Bad joke. But anyway, um. Um, but anyway, in John's gospel, so they have this amazing feast, and over 5,000 people are fed because it includes women and children. And what happens is, as you read the detail of John's account, the people keep asking for more bread. And Jesus is like, dude, don't go for the stuff that you got to work for. Come to the real thing. And they get snarky with Jesus because they want more bread. And they're like, dude, you just gave us bread one day. Uh, Moses gave us bread for 40 years, and Jesus then corrects them and says, no, 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 it was my Father who gave you bread for 40 years. To which then Jesus begins to really take them to this Exodus scene. And he points it to himself. And he responds in John chapter 6, verses 35, I am the bread of life. I'm the one, I'm the foreshadow that your family was eating on. I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. See, Jesus is addressing those two primal concerns that Israel faced in the wilderness. And he addresses it not with an improvement plan, but with himself. You and I were born into a deep hunger that this world's bread cannot satisfy. No matter how much we acquire, no matter how much we own, no matter how much power or prestige or wealth we manage to scrap together, it never, ever seems to reach down to that nine inner hunger. I mean, you look at the richest people in this world, or in our country for that matter. Lots of them are worth billions and billions of dollars. They give away maybe a trickle of it, but they still want more. Maybe that's you. You've got plenty, but you still want more. And all of us, we try and numb the hunger the world gives us with all manners of worldly promises. And the clergy aren't exempt from this, except for Jim. But you've discovered, as you pursue this, it leaves you more and more and more empty. That emptiness is the hunger of the soul. It's a spiritual hunger that calls for spiritual bread. What the world offers cannot ever satisfy that hunger, no matter how much we gorge ourselves at the world's buffet. Jesus, he says, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever should believe in me shall never thirst. Only Jesus can satisfy the deep hunger of the soul. Only Jesus can quench the thirst we have for God. Only Jesus can open our eyes to see God working in the mess of the present. And as Christians in the wilderness of this age called life, we are called to draw our sustenance from him and his merits and never our own. And this is my third point. Manna, what is it? Bug secretion, that'll still leave you hungry. Manna, what is it? It is Jesus, the Son of God, becoming man, dying on a cross to deal with our insatiable appetites for ourselves, which leads to sin and death. Manna, what is it? It's Jesus' life for the life of the world which sees you through your pilgrimage, through your wilderness, through your death, into eternal life. And yes, the world considers it foolish. And yes, your doubting heart may waver at this morsel, which seems like nothing compared to what the world is offering. But even in your doubts... Sisters and brothers, the cross reminds you that there God is having compassion upon us and God is continuing to feed us through his word and his bread, which gives and bestows eternal life until our journey ends or he returns. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. Produced and recorded at the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the City of New York. If you feel led to support the continuing ministry of the parish, you can make an online donation at calvarystgeorges.org/give. It. Thank you.